electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The shutdown is off for now. A last-minute scramble until the next deadline 45 days from now and the politics that harken back to history. Jacobin means a-hole, I think. And there's about eight of them. Billionaire Bill Ackman, the Pershing Square manager, is eyeing a new deal. It is the return of the SPAC. His new take on SPACs, his business interest in Elon Musk, plus Ackman on politics and the economy. I think a Biden-Trump election is not good for the country. I'd, I'd love for there to be a candidate the entire country can get behind. And what will mom and dad say? Their most important role regarding Sam was the way they raised him. The New Yorker's Sheila Kohatkar on fallen crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried's parents. He was treated as a genius, very special, intellectually precocious kid from the beginning. All that today and more. It's Monday. It's October 2nd, 2023. This supersized Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good Monday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And guess what? It's a new month. It's a new quarter. It is a fresh start for the markets. Stopped raining. Stopped raining. And it's Monday. Yay. Beautiful day. Uh, Yesterday's beautiful. This week's supposed to be beautiful, at least here in New York. Let's take a look at what's happening right now. First up today on the podcast, the 11th hour end to the shutdown stalemate. Over the weekend, Congress was able to come to a deal to keep the government funded at its current level for another 45 days. On this vote, the yeas are 335, the nays are 91, two-thirds being in the affirmative, the rules are suspended. The bill is passed, and without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy doing what he said he would not do. The Republican leader made a deal with Democrats to pass this short-term stopgap measure that works until November 17th. Winston Churchill once said this about America. You can always count on Americans to do what's right after they exhausted every other option. It is very clear that I tried every possible way listening to every single person in the conference. This short-term deal does not include funding for Ukraine or any policy changes to limit immigration at the southern border, two key issues that the right-wing flank of the Republican Party were prepared to hold out to address. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer after the bill was passed. This is a bridge CR, a temporary solution, not the final destination. We will not stop fighting for more economic and security assistance for Ukraine. Majorities in both parties support Ukraine aid. And doing more is vital for America's security and for democracy around the world. Further complicating the debate, congressional leaders must pass 12 bills that fund different parts of the government. Four have passed already, but of the remaining eight, 
One failed in the House, and two have yet to finish clearing committees. Nearly all of these bills are packed with Republican priorities, setting up another series of negotiations for the Speaker. Kevin McCarthy needs to keep his party conference united to pass the remaining spending bills, but some are not happy about the weekend deal with the Democrats. Florida Congressman Matt Gates has vowed to take the first steps to oust McCarthy from his leadership. If Democrats bail out McCarthy, as they may do, then I will lead the resistance to this uniparty. But here's the rub. Gates, who is mad about dealing with Dems, would need Democratic support to remove the Speaker. McCarthy still has most of his conference. Members like Republican Brian Fitzpatrick told NBC that spending time fighting over all this takes lawmakers' attention away from bigger issues. It's going to grind uh, operations here to a halt, and we have a lot of threats. China, Russia, uh, Iran, we have internal um, challenges here in the United States with our border, with inflation, with crime. That's what we should be focusing on, not this. Democratic House leaders, like Majority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, a bipartisan spending agreement that keeps government open, aren't showing their cards about who will support who. Here's what Punchbowl News' Jake Sherman told us on Squawk Box today. Jeffries has probably the biggest uh, decision of his, definitely the biggest decision of his leadership, but one of the biggest decisions of his career in will he save Kevin McCarthy. And by the way, Democrats will be split here. They don't need every Democrat. They need 20 to 40 Democrats to either take a walk or to vote to table. So a shutdown averted, a kick the can for now deal, and the drama does not end. Let's get back to Joe, Becky, and Andrew. What were you thinking? I'm thinking we need to talk before we talk about this, <laughs> who's going to be on. Right? I just think, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. So what McCarthy wanted to do was pass something that the Republicans could say, that had no chance in the Senate, but like the last, like the debt ceiling, he could say, I was able to pass this. Right. Now come to the table and let's talk about it. And get to, Guess who blocked any possibility of that? The same, no, the same guys. Right. The same guys blocked that. So then when that's blocked, he's got no other choice. So he does this. Then they're mad about this. And they say, you can't do this. So we know what these guys are interested in. Now, the Journal has a a, a good take today. Uh, Biden's uh, number one, uh, Carlos Jimenez called uh, Matt Gaetz Biden's favorite Republican. Because what's going to happen now is to get any Democrats to vote for him, the speaker's going to have to promise something to them which weakens his stance, weakens the, the, the Republican. So the journal calls these guys Jacobins. So I had to look that up. And there's a complicated uh, explanation for what it is. These are people that, uh, during the French Revolution, the most radical group that ushered in the reign of terror and basically wanted to blow up. So basically Jacobins, the French translation in English is a-holes. That's what I finally figured out, <laughs> that Jacobin means a-hole, I think. And there's about eight of them. I don't know how this finally happens. Now, they would say, we're principled, we're this, we're that, we're spending too much. It's all true. No, they're but not. In Matt de- Gates just doesn't like Kevin McCarthy. For a lot of reasons. To- <laughs> for a lot of reasons. And some pretty tawdry ones in, in, in the past. But that's neither here nor there. But, you know, if in divided government, either you want to blow up, either you've got to figure a way to do something, and if it entails some compromises, is distasteful as that is for, for Republicans that want to cut spending, it's the way it is when you, do you don't have the White or House or the Senate. Right. Do you right. want a governor or not? That is the So to just question. sit there and just keep, I'm going to hold my breath. 
or to, to blow the whole place well, look, up. There is now this movement to potentially oust Gates. There's an ethics committee right. Right. that investigates. But McCarthy can only lose four. It. He will probably lose four. And know, then the question becomes: Do the Democrats there's about eight or nine come to his rescue Kennedy. to keep him? Democrats, Kennedy's Democrats gonna jockey, save him? Andy Biggs, yeah. the guy from uh, Montana, Matt Rose. Would the Democrats save him? Akeem from Jeffries is the most what, what, important. At what cost? Right. What, what would McCarthy have to? There's a couple of pull, things. Call off the impeachment hearings. I mean, probably what would call he have off to the do? impeachment hearings. Probably agree Ukraine? to Ukraine to Ukraine funding. Yes. But, so, but as it's pointed out by, by uh, Congressman. Humanist uh, from from down in uh, uh, Florida. It's favorite. It, it helps Democrats by weakening McCarthy yes. even right. further and causing. The, the question is, who would replace McCarthy? And I think right. a year ago the answer was probably Scalise. Steve Scalise. But Scalise you don't, who wants to go right into now. this? Right. He's fighting an illness right now. And so who I wants to go into that with, with uh, this impeachment thing and with another budget uh, fiasco? No, not another fiasco. Look, but the reason that you see yields higher this morning on the 10-year across the entire complex, the Treasury complex, is because this only gets us down to November 17th. There's still a lot of questions as to what happens. But I think it's a huge surprise that Kevin McCarthy was able to avert well, shut down this well, we, When we were I, talking I to him last week, I said, I knew, I knew this was what, that's the only choice. Yeah. That's the only thing. And, and Andrew, there is a company. I was happy to see him stop. What's the company? There's a co- Royal A-Hold. Royal, Royal A-Hold. So it's, it's, is it is cable. It's okay. differently. You don't know which I was saying. <laughs> what? I think you can say it. I think you can say it. How about ass hat? Ass hat? Is that okay? You probably what is can't that? Even... What, I don't think that's, that's a code word for the no, full it A-Hole. Mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just yeah. to use it in place of... That's why I don't think you can use it. <laughs> I don't think cable. you can use it all. It's cable. Meantime, hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman getting approval for his special purpose acquisition rights company is called Spark, and he's now looking for a deal, a big one. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Ackman's Pershing Square showing interest in an investment deal with Elon Musk's S Corp. We should say it's not clear that Elon Musk is looking for a deal with him, but we'll talk about it in just a little bit. Other companies that could work for the Spark. Uh, would include private equity-owned businesses and mature unicorns. And we're going to get to ask uh, Bill Ackman about all of this and so much more when he joins us right here on Squawk Box. It is the return of the SPAC, if you will. It's just a, uh, a little bit of a different model. This actually came after the SPAC. If you remember, he had that big SPAC that was going to merge with, uh, with Universal. It's ultimately blocked by the SEC. He ended up uh, buying that Universal stake for his own fund, but there were these rights, these warrants that came with that that was a little bit different than the previous, uh, previous sort of generation of SPACs. This has now been approved by the SEC, and so now we'll see what he buys. Uh, he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of money burning, up, burning what, a hole in his pocket. What happened with taunting? Did, did he get to save that, or did he give those back ultimately? He ultimately gave the money back, but there, were, yeah. but there were these interesting warrants, which we'll talk about with him, uh, that ultimately lead to this moment now where he can go buy a big business. The question is, what kind of business does he buy? Is it a private equity company? He threw out the idea that, you know, one day could Elon Musk decide that he wants to take X, X public without having to go through the public rigmarole. That was always the benefit of, uh, benefit of SPAC. I always argued, as you know, that the problem with SPACs was that they, sh- they didn't go through the rigmarole, and the rigmarole is actually a worthy rigmarole because I think we've learned that so many of them went public and, and probably shouldn't have. So we'll talk about all that with him and more. Yeah, the comments that he made about X, I thought, okay, you do a deal with X, but the question is always the price. Would it be more or less than 
Well, when first of all, the, the way the way this process works, and 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 we should discuss this with Bill, is there's a vote that has to happen. You actually have to you have to you have to vote in to this whole thing. So, I don't think at least at this moment anybody is buying X for forty four billion dollars. Question is, are you buying it for twenty two billion dollars? Right. Are you buying it for eleven billion dollars? Are you buying it for five billion dollars? Do a deal with anybody. It's always a question of the price. Right. right. So he threw out this idea. This is him throwing out the idea. This right. is not not Elon. There's no right, right, nobody right. talking to each other. There's no nothing. In fact, I think it would be illegal uh, for them to have been talking to each other at this point. So there is no there's no discussions. So when you see right. these headlines about, you know, Ackman interested next. That's true. Ackman's interested. But don't don't get too excited just yet. But we'll but maybe we'll get excited about talking to to Bill you about saw, all of it. We, now we talked so long, we're not going to talk about this. Beyonce? The concert, AMC. Beyonce is, so that started what could be a trend. It, I, you, you were, I was watching last night. The Jets yeah. game, yeah. Yeah. Taylor, Taylor Swift. Watching Travis Kelsey. And, and, but then, <laughs> uh, 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 but afterward. Can you but, do that face again? Uh, no, I can't. I, 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 maybe I could be an actor <laughs> because it comes naturally when I, but did you see the ads for the movie, it looks yes. phenomenal. Yeah. It looks well, phenomenal. Well, that was very two, smart marketing Two hours placement. and 45 minutes for, for Taylor Swift. But now, since 2020, I guess movie chains can now make movies. Right. But also, studios can now own right. movie chains. Do you know who you have to thank for that? Macon Delrahim, who ran the antitrust department Th- in the Trump administration. Right. He was the one who pushed, and this was the example that he pushed for, well, the, that, that, that there should be more competition and competition like this. I just can't believe AMC's in the driver's seat with, now with Beyonce. It's, it's fantastic. It's amazing. But Wait. we'll see whether it's, it's back the Back in the prompter, you can talk about it. You want to, talk, you want to, you want to tell people what you're actually talking well, about? Well, we did. Beyonce is going to do it, too. Beyonce is going, isn't going to let Taylor be the only box office queen. According to Variety, the makers of, uh, uh, of a concert film of Beyonce's Renaissance World Tour reportedly in direct talks or in talks to do it with AMC directly through there, the theater chain and Beyonce's camp are not uh, commenting and Taylor Swift's movie of the Eras tour is gonna hit AMC screens on October 13th. The film is expected to top $100 million uh, the weekend it opens, there's AMC and it was- Nobody wants to run against it. Movies no. are moving out right. of the way. I know, but it's crazy. It is crazy. Well, it's crazy that fortune. Scott, that, yep. no, that I know. Taylor's father, it, and I know. I'm like Forrest Gump. I'm, I'm there on the edges of everything. <laughs> Rick Santelli brings up the Tea Party because of a question I asked him. So that, that's in history books. It's very strange. Uh, anyway, at least I get to go. Um, more squawk in just a moment. Cheese will be next. Coming up, hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman getting approval for his special purpose acquisition rights company. It's called a spark, and he's looking for a deal. Where there's a spark, hopefully there won't be a fire. Plus, would the high-profile billionaire buy X? I have a lot of respect for Musk. I think Twitter is a really important platform, and I think it's a unique, very difficult to disrupt kind of asset. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. This is Squawk Pod. Stand by, Joe. His mic. Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Meantime, U.S. regulators approving a unique special purpose acquisition company structure from investor Bill Ackman. Uh, Instead of a SPAC, it's being called a SPARC for special purpose acquisition rights company. Ackman will inform investors of potential deal before they decide to pledge funds. And Bill Ackman, who made a lot of news over the weekend about what he might want to do with this fund, uh, joins us right now. He, of course, is the founder and CEO of Pershing Square Capital Management, floating the possibility of maybe trying to uh, take X, formerly Twitter, public with Elon Musk. What's going on? Only good things. Only good things. Let's talk about uh, this fund and let's talk about some of the headlines you made over the weekend, because uh, this this structure was approved. And one of one of the names that's been floated, I believe, by you we talked about in the six o'clock hour was the possibility that you might want to take X public via this this fund. So maybe we should back up a little. Okay. So if you think of a typical IPO, right, you've got to sort of expose yourself to the world with a prospectus well before knowing whether you can raise any money. And then you're subject to the market. And if the market's there and the shareholders, the investors like you, stars align, you raise your money. You don't know what the price is. You don't know how much. You don't know whether it gets done. That's the typical deal. What we've done is we kind of reverse that whole process. Imagine a world in which you sit down with an investor. The investor does due diligence on your business, likes your business, likes the management, says, you know what, I'll invest a billion and a half dollars at $25 a share, regardless of what the market does between the time we file with the SEC and the time the prospectus gets approved. What do you say? Well, I think every IPO uh, investor would say, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I said, what if you need, so we'll guarantee you a billion and a half dollars, we'll guarantee you a fixed price. And by the way, if you need more, we have a whole bunch of other investors who like us, who've invested alongside us before, and they're going to get to invest at the same price. What do you say? And that's what we call Persian Square Spark Holdings. Right. That's, what, that's what this new fund effectively. It's not, and it's this, not a fund. It's, it's really a, a structure. Called a structure, yes. And, and let's just talk about the history of the structure because it really came out of mm-hmm. a SPAC Mm-hmm. I, dare I say, a challenged or even a failed SPAC, if you will, which mm-hmm. was an effort to buy uh, Universal Music, uh, effectively blocked of sorts by the SEC. You mm-hmm. ended up taking, you ended up still buying that stake in your fund itself, which has been, I believe, a successful investment. It has you. been, yes. Um, but explain what the SPAC to Spark piece is, because the SPAC piece has a lot, you know, I, I think is... Uh, it's got a bad you know, name. It's got a bad name. Sure. So the, the story here is... We set out to create a much better version of a SPAC, what we called Persian Square Tontine Holdings. And people liked it. And we had $12 billion of demand for a $4 billion IPO, so we picked a who's who of investors to be our investors. Uh, two years later, we were not able to deliver because the SEC ultimately did not approve the somewhat unusual structure of the universal music uh, transaction. So what we said to them at the time is we said, look, apologies, not a great outcome for us, but we're going to give you a ticket to a new party we have a much better idea for how these entities should be you structured. Returned all, you returned all the money, though. Returned all the money. But you gave them a, you returned the money. And we and gave them a ticket. Gave them a ticket. And the ticket said, when we get this thing approved, what we're calling Spark, you get to be the first in line. And so we're, 
the approval that happened on Friday, in effect, enables us to distribute uh, these rights to shareholders. And they won't trade unless and until we find a great business to buy, we negotiate a deal, we enter into a definitive agreement at a fixed price, we commit Pershing Square funds, commit, you know, say a billion dollars, and let's say the company wants to raise five billion, we commit a billion, right. we set the rights price, there's 61 million of these rights, each one can buy two shares, so think 122 million rights, want to raise another four billion dollars, we set the price at, let's say, $35 a share. So uh, the company now knows they're going public, they now know the price, and so the first public disclosure is we're going public, we know the price, we know we're raising the right. minimum amount of capital we need, and then we file with the SEC, we get the prospectus approved, we do a little roadshow, right. and then the rights begin to trade, and people can invest uh, at the same price as us. Uh, there are no underwriting fees, and there's none of the typical risks of an IPO. So enter this idea of X. So one of the things sure. you told the Wall Street Journal over the weekend was that you would be open, absolutely, you said, Sure. to using this vehicle, if you will, mm -hmm. to take X, Elon Musk's formerly Twitter, uh, public. Right. The history here is they were writing an article about my tweets they've been working on for a couple of weeks. And then when they saw this filing, I think they decided to, well, they certainly asked me the question, would we use this kind of vehicle to take X public? So how interested public? are you in taking X public? Answer, you, you invested, I should say, in Twitter when Elon Musk bought it, correct? Yes, the Pershing Square Foundation made a very small investment relative to the size of the deal. $10 million in a $40 billion deal. So and nothing. would you like to buy it? So the answer is I have a lot of respect for Musk. I, I think Twitter is a really important platform. I think he's made tremendous uh, improvements to the platform. And I think it's a unique, you know, very difficult to disrupt kind of asset and one that could, uh, you know, grow. And he's obviously going to pursue right. different lines of, of business. So I think, it's, I think it's quite interesting. I don't have information on how the business is doing. I have no idea whether he has any interest in doing something. Have you spoken to him about it? I have not. I have not. So this is just... They asked me a question, would you consider it? The answer is absolutely, because I like the business, I like Musk, and I think it's important. He's got a lot of debt on that company. Yes, and that's where this structure is 13 interesting. Billion. You know, it would be hard today what? to try to do a $13 billion IPO, let's say, to pay down debt. What's interesting here is we could commit Pershing Square $2 billion to a transaction, set the rights price, they're $121 million, right? set it at $100 a share, and announce a transaction. He knows he's going public. He knows he's raising $2 billion, which certainly helps. And then we tell the story. And then the rights holders uh, have a chance to decide whether to right. invest. As long as the rights have positive value, the trading in the market for a dollar, they're all going to get exercised. And the IPO raises $13. And the, uh, sorry, $13 billion. And the right. investors are, are a who's who of, you know, if you go back and look at the people we raise capital from, just look at the 13F list, for persons who are taunting holdings, it's a who's who of institutions, uh, right. family offices, as well as a you know, million Musk, retail Musk investors. Musk paid $44 billion mm -hmm. for the asset. Sure. What do you think the asset's worth today? I don't know. I have no information. But would, I know, but would you, would you buy it at $22 billion? Would you, you want to own it if it was $10 billion? Would you want to own it if it was $5 billion? What, I would say you he, are a user in a sort of uh, Peter Lynch kind of approach to investing, meaning sure. You know, so the product, buy the stuff you like. The product, yes. the product's vastly better than it was before. Uh, the cost structure is vastly improved versus what it was before, obviously. I think the, the rate of innovation in terms of new features, uh, the pace of innovation is much better than it is before. I think where they've been harmed is they've lost a lot of advertisers. And I think the advertisers are likely to return. Because this is, I mean, I've actually bought stuff that I've seen advertised on Twitter. So it actually sort of works. Right. 
it's also an audience that's quite difficult to reach. I don't really watch TV. You know, I, re I read perhaps you know FT Journal, those kind of newspapers. But it's a, a unique way to reach a lot of I think very good uh, and, users. And if not from an X, advertisers' perspective, and if not X, sure, you would buy a, a classic sort of business that's owned by a private equity firm. I think that's the easiest transaction to do, right? A lot of private equity firms today they would love to you know ring the bell, if you will, return capital to their investors. Uh, you know, show progress on a, bus on a business uh, outcome. And so we, we're kind of a, a very simple solution. But they don't want to file a prospectus, get the employees all excited, distracted, and then the deal not happen. And also, the other problem with private equity is, so fine, you sell 10% of the business, and then they got a lot more stock to right. sell over time. We could buy an entire company, right? We can buy 100% of a business with this structure. Let me ask you this. And I mentioned in the 6 o'clock hour, one of the benefits of this structure, one of the benefits of the SPAC structure was you don't have to go through the, quote, rigmarole. Uh, I don't know if, we know if rigmarole is a real word, but the rigmarole of an IPO process. But there's some value to the rigmarole. No, no, no. it's not true. Of that process insofar. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we look now at a lot of the transactions, the SPAC deals that went through and say, you know what? They didn't, they didn't get the sort of spotlight that they should have where people could actually see what was really happening. No? I Why do you think that all of these SPACs were such, such failures? Because the deal was such a terrible deal for the counterparty, for the company, that only the worst of companies would transact with a SPAC. And what's different here is this are a Spark transaction will have a pure common stock capital structure, so no shareholder warrants, won't have a 5.5% underwriting fee, no frictional costs uh, of, a, you know, right. of a SPAC. And so the, the quality of the companies that we can transact with is much higher. And also the fact that they get, you know, they get us as an anchor investor. So if you think about a typical IPO, they call the Goldman Sachs of the world, they call them underwriters. But they're not really underwriters. They're not committing to buy stock at a fixed price. What we're doing here is we're an investor who takes right. an anchor position in a company after doing inside due diligence and then offers the opportunity to the public. That's a better structure for protecting the public. What about the incentive structure? Because part of the problem with the SPAC structure sure. was you had these, quote, sponsors. Yes. Might as well call them promoters. Yes. And they were collecting oftentimes 20% of the company. Yes. They could get out of the stock oftentimes if the stock traded high enough within six months to a year, yet they were relying on projections uh, that were based on four and five years out, but they didn't have to hold for that kind of period. Of course. What about you? The opposite of what we're going to do here. So one, we're going to buy something we want to own basically forever. So we're looking for a forever investment. And that's basically our approach today. We want something we can own for a decade. That's number one. Number two, we're going to invest a billion dollars, a billion and a half dollars. We'll be the largest shareholder uh, in the company. We'll be the, if you will, the anchor. We're likely to join the board of the business. So we're not, this is not a trade where we get people excited about something and we dump it, right? And we're paying the same price for those right. shares as the other shareholders. So it's a very, very different outcome. The only differential security we receive is a warrant on 5% of the company only if the people who we distribute the rights to exercise their rights. So our compensation, right. if you will. But you're going to get 5% of the company, just to be clear. 20% out of the money. We paid $35 million for that instrument, but it's contingent on the rights holders exercising. So if none of them exercise, we don't get it. Zero. So we just, we're just buying common stock in the company, a billion, you know. How much do you worry, as somebody who's now sure. on Twitter and who has a following, Sure. and we talk about meme stocks all the time, and this was true mm -hmm. of the SPAC phenomenon. People loved you during this, mm -hmm. during Tantine, during your SPAC. Mm -hmm. How much do you worry about investors who, frankly, I mean, you've just said a lot of complicated stuff that most people, frankly, should go read a prospectus or the documentation of what this looks like before they invest. 
Do you think that they even understand? I think they'll have plenty of time to understand. I mean, the, the simplicity of this is no shareholder warrants. Right. So it's common stock. They understand that, right? They understand that we're going to buy a billion dollars at $25 a share. We're going to do that in front of them, right? right. The, the time will pass. Hold on. The, it's going to receive the same scrutiny as any IPO. We have to file an IPO prospectus with the company that has to get approved by the, go effective by the SEC. It's got to get approved by the SEC. Then the rights for, trade for 20 days. So, so people can say, oh, the, the rights are trading for a penny. This is right. a bad deal. If the rights are trading for three, four dollars a share, people say, okay, the market likes this transaction. So there's a lot more information here for the retail investor than there is typically. I, I want to pivot um, before, before you, we leave you or you leave us, which is I want to talk about uh, interest rates sure. and where you think we really are headed because you've mm -hmm. made some provocative statements about where you think the 10-year is ultimately going to go, where this is all headed. I'm curious what you think that ultimately means to equities. We were just uh, speaking downstairs uh, about mortgage rates and, and, and whether they stay at the 7 8% level and, and what that, you know, do things start to break as a result? Sure. So a uh, few things. So one, I think the Fed is probably done. Uh, I think the economy is starting to slow. Uh, I think the level of real interest rates is high enough to slow things down. You know, high mortgage rates, high car rates, high credit card rates. They're starting to really have, you know, an impact on the economy. Economy is still solid, um, but it's definitely weakening, seeing lots of evidence of weakening in the economy. What our, you know, we, we, our belief when, you know, the two-year Treasury was 12 basis points was going to five, right? Uh, we no longer have that bet on. Our, the bet, only bet, if you will, and it's really a hedge at this point, is that long-term rates, the 30-year Treasury, is likely to go higher. You know, go into the mid-fives is our expectation of what happens there. I don't know that the 10-year has to go meaningfully above 5% because you're seeing some weakness in the economy. But on a long-term basis, we think structural inflation is going to be persistently right. higher. In a world like that, you know, you sh the government shouldn't be able to borrow at four and three quarters fixed for 30 years. So I think long-term rates go higher. I don't think mortgage rates, mortgage, the spread between the 10-year Treasury and mortgage rates is about the widest it's been. So you could see a world in which the 10-year Treasury goes up and mortgage rates don't go meaningfully higher than where they are now. A lot of that has to do with, I And think, when volatility. does this break the consumer, though? At some point, these, you know, seven and 10-year arms and what's going on are going to roll over. People are going to have some problems, no? And then what happens to the regional banks? I mean, this is... This well, is most people, a big percentage of the country has, fortunately, fixed rate mortgages at, you know, three and a half, four percent or less. Um, a lot of businesses, right. a lot of the big companies have fixed rate debt that's extended for a relatively long period of time. So I think the, yes, there are, you know, people have borrowed short term right. at a low fixed rate and are going to get repriced. And you look at a lot of uh, commercial real estate uh, investors are going to have a very challenging period. I think that's really the big threat, uh, a very targeted threat that, uh, that rates will have. Two other quick issues. Uh, presidential election. Uh, you've been talking a lot about how you want Jamie Dimon to run. Jamie's not going to run, I don't think. But you, I've given up on that, yes. You've given up on that. Yes. But you've, you're giving money to Vivek Ramaswamy. I did. Chris Christie. I did. You're giving money to Biden? No. No. So what do you want to happen here? I want an alternative to the choices we have now. And I think the country would be very well served. With the choices that we, that you don't want any of the people. No, that no, no. I, I, I think a Biden-Trump election is not good for the country. I'd, I'd love for there to be a candidate the entire country can get behind, as opposed to this, you know, two-sided world that we live in. Who do you like the most? You know, of I'm, all I, the people, uh, you, you have, you know the options. Well, I don't know them all. Uh, but you, no, but I mean, you know of the options. I've not met Nikki Haley. I'm going to have an opportunity to do that soon. Uh, I met with Chris Christie recently, and I was actually really impressed. A real guy, super solid, governor, did, I think, a very good job dealing with the hand he was dealt in New Jersey. 
uh, was able to get elected in a democratic state. I could see him as a, someone to bring the country together. You know, does, will he have the widespread appeal he needs in order to, right. to rise? I think you know, an early test will be New Hampshire. Final question. You met with Zelensky. Yes. Um, I think you're a supporter of Ukraine. Yeah. I think yes. You, Big supporter. Would have you liked the U.S. government this weekend to have funded Ukraine? And by the way, how does that square with Elon Musk, who I know has a very different opinion of no. Zelensky, I think. I don't, I, th I don't know that Musk has a negative opinion of Zelensky. I think, I think his view is that a forever war in Ukraine is not good for America, is not good for Ukraine, not good for anyone. I agree with that. I'd like to see a, a world in which that, we can, that, war, that war ends. It's, it's a black swan risk for the world. There are thousands of young people right. and, and innocent people dying. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see a world where that ends sooner rather than later. Okay, Bill Ackman, touching so many different subjects. Thank you. We we'll hope to uh, follow the uh, progress of the spark. Spark will be good. Let me know if there is a spark, a spark of interest from Elon Musk and others. Thanks. Where there's a spark, hopefully there won't be a fire. Next on Squawk Pod, crypto in the courthouse. Sam Bankman-Fried stands trial on federal charges of fraud and money laundering beginning this week. CNBC's Kate Rooney on what his former FTX employees are saying about the crypto platform's implosion. And The New Yorker's Sheila Kolhatkar on the role the one-time billionaire's parents played. She spoke to SBF's mom. We've all been shocked by things our kids have done. She never confronted him and said, did you do any of these things? CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. We are going to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. We have Kate Rooney in the house on her birthday, no less. So oh, happy, happy birthday, birthday, Kate Rooney. Thank you, guys. Great you're to be here. Here in the big city, I imagine, for the next several weeks, yeah. you're, probably, you're going to be here for the trial. Six-week trial. I'll be here this right. week, probably in and out, depending on some of the testimony. So let's explain what's going on here, because the next chapter in the collapse of failed crypto exchange FTX set to begin. It's starting tomorrow. Sam Bankman-Fried's trial getting underway ahead of those Ahead of that, I should say, the hardest hit by that bankruptcy case are now telling their side of the story to CNBC and to Kate Rooney specifically. And she joins us to tell us what they're saying and what's going on and what we're going to hear. Yeah, it's great to see you guys, by the way. And Harrison resigned from his position at FTX less than two months before its implosion. He described a tense relationship with Bankman Freed. And I asked him to explain his sense of the company's financial health when he left. I had no reason to suspect that FTX wasn't anything other than extremely profitable and in great shape. You know, Sam was, you know, embarking on fundraising again. He had said both on some internal all hands and externally that, you know, FTX.com had, you know, $2 billion in excess capital as a result of its raises, and FTX US had six or seven hundred million, and they were in amazing shape. You think. FTX is going to you know, eat the world because it's so profitable. So some of the top employees at the time of FTX really didn't have a sense of the, the actual financial health of the company. I can only speak for the people on the U.S. side. We had absolutely no clue. How is that possible? Well, look, if imagine yourself in our position, like you are in a high-ranking position, but you're not the CEO. Do you think, OK, Sam has made all this public and private reporting about the financials of the company. 
I should really get all of the bank statements. I should get access to all of those and I should rummage through them and see if I agree with the accounting. Sam testified in front of Congress. He's getting you know, public accolades from the top investment firms. Should I also distrust everything he's saying in those two forums? I, I think anyone in our position would, would be hard pressed to think, okay, this is the time where I'm supposed to suspect something is wrong at the company. If there were anybody who knew the real financial health of FTX, who would that have been? I would have to think that his closest inner circle of the people in the Bahamas, that at least the other founders, you know, had to know. We now know that four people in that inner circle Harrison describes have pled guilty to charges related to the collapse of FTX. Bankman-Fried has pled not guilty. And whether or not you can understand how some of the warning signs went unnoticed, Harrison and others say they were in the dark about FTX's financial health. Harrison is also one of the only FTX executives who says he pushed back on Bankman-Fried's leadership style. A lot more on that and what FTX customers have to say to Sam Bankman-Fried in our documentary, the Collapse of FTX Insiders, Tell All. Check it out on CNBC.com. We can watch it right now. <laughs> he pushed back on the leadership style. What, what bothered him about the leadership style? The insular nature, nature of, of this whole thing. So he's based in Chicago. Sam Beckman-Fried had a group of top executives in the Bahamas that lived with him. He said he felt like an outsider. He was the head of this U.S. Uh, business for FTX. He felt like he didn't have access to Sam. He felt like he couldn't push back. And that when he did, he was sort of silenced. And so he, he really was one of the only vocal executives. And he actually left the company a couple months before the collapse. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And man, this is fascinating stuff. We're going to be watching this week. Kate, thank you. Our next guest has been following the fallout closely, sat down with Bankman Fried and his family. Her latest piece uh, uncovers the unique relationship uh, between Bankman Fried's parents and how they played a role in all of this here with a preview of what to expect as the trial begins. New York, uh, New Yorker staff writer, Sheila Kolakdar. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning. It was a fun story. Um, you, you talk about the role of the family and you talk about the role of these parents. Uh, they, they have not been charged in this case. And I'm, I've always been curious, do you think that they would be or what do you think their real role was in this? Because there was a suggestion in the piece that they had some kind of role, but not necessarily that you put it all the way there. Well, I think uh, their role, their most important role regarding Sam was the way they raised him, which was pretty unique and interesting. He was treated as a genius, very special, intellectually precocious kid from the beginning. And uh, they are both very accomplished themselves. They're professors at Stanford Law School, uh, huge bodies of academic work that both of them have produced. And they really went out of their way to kind of cultivate his intellectual gifts as a kid. And he ended up growing up in an environment where he felt like he was very smart. The world would care a lot about what he had to say and what his contributions were going to be. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think they intervened too much with what he was doing. Certainly at the beginning of his career, they really felt confident that he was going to find right. you know, some very important calling and pursue it. So... I think you could make the argument that maybe they should have intervened more early on. And uh, well, the question is, should have they known to intervene and could have they? You know, you, you went on a walk or a hike uh, with with his mother. And if I remember, there's a quote in the piece that suggests that she could never really see him doing anything wrong. In some ways, you describe the way you like a lot of parents to make their kids feel um, in terms of 
making them feel special. Everybody wants to feel special. Sound but the familiar? question is, when does it, <laughs> when does it get, too, get pushed too, too far? Well, that was one of the most powerful moments I experienced with his parents is because, I mean, I'm a parent. I think probably most of us here are parents. Yep. Uh, we've all been shocked by things our kids have done. And I certainly remember as a teenager, my parents being a little startled to discover certain things that I was doing. So I was fully expecting her to tell me, uh, you know, yeah, when I first read about this, I was stunned. I went to my son and I said, you know, like, Sam, is any of this true? And, you know, it was it was remarkable to me that she she told me she never even had to do that. She never confronted him. And said, did you do any of these things? But she they told me also she- benefited financially, which is the other issue. Right. All of us may have been surprised by things our kids have done. None of us have benefited so enormously financially from those same mistakes. Or they certainly, fraud, yeah. outright fraud. Yeah, no, you are right. They certainly did benefit financially. And I would say socially and in their other activities. I mean, Barbara had a political action committee that was very successful, but that received support from Sam and his co-workers. And of course, Joe was directly working at the company for a time. Right. I mean, to, to go back in time and put it in their perspective, I do think that at that time, they felt that their son was this incredibly successful multi-billion dollar tech mogul. And the idea of taking certain things from him right. was perhaps not completely you, outrageous. We got, we're going to have to run. It's a great piece and everybody should go read it. But my question to you is, do you anticipate either Sam and or the parents testifying in the trial? I think there's a strong chance Sam himself will testify. I mean, he's in a little bit of a losing situation either way. If he doesn't testify, his cooperators are going to testify right. for him. And if he does, we can imagine things getting very spicy. What, what about the parents? Uh, I, I certainly have heard no indication that they will be called to testify, but they are okay. not out of legal peril themselves. Okay. Sheila, uh, it's a great piece. It's in uh, last week's New Yorker. Uh, you can get it online and anywhere you buy a New Yorker. Thanks. That's Squawk Pod for today. Happy Monday. Happy October. You can catch Kate Rooney's digital documentary, The Collapse of FTX, on CNBC.com today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's amazing. It's back in the prompter. You can talk about it. You want to talk? You want to, you want to tell people what you're actually talking about? Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Get the best of our TV show right into your ears when you follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.